Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good. Who's happy about the snow? Couple? Y'all are crazy. Makes it feel a little more like Christmas, right? Doing donuts. When I got here in the morning, somebody was doing them out there. Yeah. Yeah, this, if you don't know, I should probably shouldn't advertise this, but if you ever got the feeling to do donuts in the snow, this is a great parking lot for it. I wouldn't recommend it while there are other cars here, but you know what I mean. Yeah, sometimes I'm the guy. But, yeah, it's a great parking lot for that if you're ever bored. And there's a fresh snow. Oh, yeah. Well, it's nice to be with you all. If you want, stand and we'll pray and praise God. Father, we love you. We're here for you. Uh, we praise you for how you've worked in our lives and brought us to this place and how you're continuing to work and grow us. Um, so we pray that as we praise you with these songs and these words, as we hear your, your word through Leonard today, God, just uh, let it be a great morning for us, for your kingdom, for the growth of your church. Um, so we pray for Leonard as he preaches, pray for clarity of what you've put on him and for us to have ears to hear it and to be open to you working in us. Um, and we just lift uh, the rest of this day up as the caroling's happening and then the the worship night tonight, and just let it be a great day for you, God. Um, so we pray for your blessing on all of it, for everything outside of this place in this season. Uh, it's a crazy time, um, but just uh, help us stay focused on you and everything, and as we pray, uh, prepare for a great weekend next weekend and a great time together and time with family and uh, just praising you and being grateful for you, God. And so we love you and we thank you today. the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king peace on earth and mercy mild god and sinners reconciled joyful all ye nations rise join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn King. Christ heaven adored Christ the everlasting Lord light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings mild he lays his glory by born that men no more may die born to raise the sons of earth born to give a second birth 
heart the herald angels sing glory God who was, we worship the God who is, we worship the God who evermore will be. And he opened the prison doors, he parted the raging sea. My God, he holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord, there's joy in the house of the Lord today. sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. Because he hung upon that cross and he rose up from that grave. My God still rolling stones away. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is sure to be in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. We were the best. But now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. Redeemed. 
won't be quiet. We shout out in praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. seated. Okay, and reading the Advent today, love Bathsheba. This week in the fourth week of Advent, Advent is the season in the church calendar where you observe a time of expectation on the arrival of Christ's birth. The word Advent comes from the Latin meaning arriving. Traditionally, during Advent, we reflect on some of the attributes in faith in Christ, Jesus, peace, love, faith, and hope. This week is love. If Ruth is the most heartwarming romance record in scripture, then Bathsheba is surely the most heartbreaking. Instead of being built on kindness and respect, it's more like a modern cable TV love story rooted in lust, rape, and infidelity. Bathsheba with the wife of Erah and the Hittite one of King David's most trusted military officers. But then one day, David spotted Bathsheba bathing from the roof of the palace, slept with her pregnant, and had her husband murdered to cover up the affair. The baby born of their union died as a consequence of God's judgment on their illicit relationship. The text makes no suggestion that Bathsheba was doing anything wrong or unusual in bathing the way she was. Rather, it appears that David was where he shouldn't have been, allowed his eyes to linger and his heart to follow. Moreover, the scripture is silent about any supposed complicity on Bathsheba, part and lays the blame squarely on David. Given the times and the culture in which she lived, Bathsheba almost certainly had no power to refuse the advances of an absolute monarch. The entire incident is unsavory and troubling on several levels. After the affair, Bathsheba became one of David's wives and gave birth to Solomon's, David's chosen heir and pursuit of the Christ to come. In later life, she appeared as the queen mother whose influence and voice secured the succession of her son. While David is the most significant name in the genealogy of Jesus, the inclusion of the Bathsheba prevents him from being part on an unwarranted pedestal. Indeed, her presence insists upon the grace of the coming Messiah who would redeem people caught in relationship of an unequal power and talented love and restore them in the true love and freedom offered by God. This is an old, old Gaither song that I sang when I was growing up. We won't say how many years ago that was. But Mandy was good enough to play this for me. It's called Redeeming Love. 
from God's heaven to a manger, from great riches to the poor, came the Holy Son of God, a little child. From the azure halls of heaven to a lowly manger stone, Jesus came and here he gave his life for all. That um, made me think of you seeing that as a little girl, and it was just beautiful, probably from God's point of view, either way, and we are very blessed to have you share that with us. So as we gather, uh, we know that we are in the fourth week of Advent, and uh, it is a season that in the tradition of the church, people wait in expectation for the coming of the Lord. And as believers, we know that he came once as a fulfillment of the promises, and now we wait in expectation that he will come again. And so hopefully you've captured that sense of waiting as we've gone into this season. And hopefully we can, we can propel you forward as we showcase some of the women in the genealogy. 
But before we get there, I want to uh, just take a minute or so and um, lift up any prayer concerns that we might have. We've had a, a couple of deaths that I, I wanted to mention. One of them is Judy Brown, and the other one is Ed Fisher. So please keep their families lifted up uh, in your prayers. And I also wanted to uh, keep uh, Wayne Lulai, Josh's dad, who's in the hospital right now, um, just um, going through some some things uh, relative to uh, his, his lungs and his oxygen levels. So please be praying for that. And I didn't know if there was anything else you guys had that was a burden or a concern that we could raise before the Lord. We certainly want to do that or anything that you're celebrating uh, that we want to acknowledge. Anybody have anything? Kathy? Okay. for Harold, who has a growth on his neck, and it's inoperable. Says Kathy, Kathy Martin. Anyone else? Thought I saw another hand a minute ago. Rachel? Okay. Oh, my. Okay. amazing yeah wow mm -hmm. okay wow you have a bionic daughter when she gets done okay well so pray for sammy uh if you're here last week she was one of the readers up here and uh, she uh, is going through some challenges with uh, a torn uh, tendon and uh, tonsils. So lift her up. That's Brent and Rachel's daughter. Anybody else? Diane? Okay. Uh-huh. Sure. Yeah, I'll just uh, kind of summarize a little bit. Um, Diane's uh, daughter-in-law, Amy's, had uh, some eye, eye issues that uh, need pretty major medical attention. And um, I'm, not, I'm try not trying to be funny, but it is kind of funny. We're going to die by bureaucracy. And she's unable to get uh, the type of treatment that she needs because she's being blockaded by the insurance flowchart. So we have to ask God to break that open so that she can, we can humanize the situation and she can get the care that she needs. Is that a pretty good way to say it? Okay. All right. And that's certainly something that's an odd prayer concern, but it's an increasing one now. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and pray then, shall we? Our Lord Jesus, we gather in this space because it defines us. It is a place where we come together and we see you present in the lives of other people. And we hear that still small voice by your spirit speaking to our own. 
And we have this sense, Lord, that there is something greater and larger going on in the world than what perhaps the news would say. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us a message that is eternal. It is a framework for life that is called the kingdom, and it is a place that we can dwell and inhabit and find in the midst of a changing world that has very bad leadership, we are trusting ourselves to your care. And we thank you that as we pray for our daily bread, it's just a way of recognizing that you are our provider for every need. And as we pray for your kingdom to come, it is a way of acknowledging that you are taking the challenge that the world is throwing at you and you are responding to it through us. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just enable your church to be that voice that we need to be for the world around us. And we know, Lord, that there is a vacuum there that is being filled by things that um, will ultimately dehumanize people. And we want to proclaim the good news that Jesus is Lord and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we pray that hardened hearts would be softened and eyes that have scales on them would be would be would be made to open and see the the things that you have prepared for us the things that are presently available and in the access that we have through your son and the enabling we have through your spirit we can know a peace that passes all understanding we can find a joy whenever everything around us seems to be in turmoil and we can discover your love each day as we express it and find it given to us through you and through the people around us. We pray, Father, that you just help us to lift up the people that we know are hurting. And so we, we pray for Judy Brown's family and Ed Fisher's family as they go through a season of grief, that you would be a minister of comfort to them. And we pray for Harold, who has this inoperable condition. I just pray, Father, that you would just cause whatever it is that is creating uh, these needs in his life to subside and that you would bring life and health back to his being. And I pray for Amy as she tries to navigate the bureaucracy of insurance just so she can regain her sight. And I pray that the, the walls that are separating her from the care that she needs would be broken down and that you would provide that miracle that she longs for. Thank you, Father, for all the ways that you've been at work in, in, in the lives of different people who have brought these concerns up before and we've seen you faithfully respond. And so as we just lift up, we also want to keep in mind uh, Sammy as she's going into um, a, a long time of recovery with her uh, Achilles tendon. And I pray, Father, that you would just bless everything that the doctors are doing to enable her to re to just, just resume her ability to be a child who is developing into a, a, an adult. And I thank you, Father, for the spiritual space that you've given her with, with our own Miss Amy and our volunteers and the people that play such a vital role in speaking into these young lives. I pray that you would bless them and enable them. And I pray for us as a church. We are not only going through Advent, but we live in a culture that puts a lot of demands on us during Christmas and many of them, even though they relate to the season, have nothing to do with your son. And I pray that you would give us clarity regarding what is culturally driven and consumer driven and what is driven by your spirit in our hearts and our lives. I just ask, Father, that as we gather, we can sense how that pathway and all the clutter uh, is, to be, uh, is to be recognized and that we could walk into that and live in that. So I pray for those who are gathering tonight to sing, that you would bless them whether it is through caroling or whether it is through worship. 
And I just pray for the rest of us in the course of the week that you would unfold the week in a way that gives us that expectation that Jesus has been born and we are the recipients of how that great love flows into our lives as you first gave it in the form of the life of your son. And Father, we just want to lift all of these things up to you and other burdens that I know are on hearts right now that we haven't mentioned. Please just hear those prayers and those cries. And, um, and, and Lord, I know you store uh, our, your, our, our tears in a bottle and you recognize just how deeply uh, we go through the dark valleys and yet you are there. And so, Lord, prepare us as we align our hearts and our minds and think about the promises and the responsibility that the Lord's Prayer presents to us. So please pray with me now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 11. And I wanted to start this message off with a public service announcement. And that is, maybe I'll do it in the form of a question. Does anybody know when the Christmas Eve service is next Saturday? What time? Five? Five o'clock? We've never done it at five o'clock before. Uh, okay. Five o'clock, people. Saturday, next week. See you all there. Bring your friends. When is that again? Five. Okay. Somebody's not here today, and you know them, please remind them. And then, because we're just uh, changing it up completely, uh, because that's what God does sometimes. Do you guys have any idea when we're meeting on Sunday then for Christmas Day? 10? Okay, you guys are a lot bolder in that, so the confidence is a little bit, but that's all right. Five and 10, right? Five and dime. Just remember that. I don't know where you grew up at or what was available, but that's my world, okay? So anyway, uh, we are in the fourth week of Advent, and if you've been going through uh, the Advent devotional, you know that we have been looking at the genealogy of Matthew. And we're doing something I've never really done before, and I found it very rewarding and, and actually very eye-opening in, in many ways. And that is there, there are five names listed in the genealogy that are women, which in a very strongly patriarchal culture, that, that's kind of unusual. Yet when Matthew wrote this gospel, he wanted to showcase these lives in a way that prompted us to the story that they had and the things that go through uh, in the place on the timeline that they, that they navigated in. And I'm hoping this is not going to give you guys trouble, well, that they navigated in. And as they did, as we've gone through the names here, starting with Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and today we're down to Bathsheba, which is um, uh, David, whose wife was, who's, who's, uh, who Solomon, uh, who, who let me just read it. Uh, okay. Um, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, which is an interesting designation. And as I wrote this, uh, and by the way, it's not too late to go through this if you don't have a copy. There's some out there. 
But, but as I put that together, one thing I wanted to do was just draw out their stories. And the, the difficulty that I had with this message was I was trying to figure out what Bathsheba's story was. I mean, we're familiar with the temptation scene uh, with David and Bathsheba. Everybody knows that, but there, there's always more to the story. And as I wrote it, I was still trying to figure out what that story was. And subsequently, I, I saw a lot of things that, um, that I didn't recognize before. Because the truth be told, um, you don't have a lot of quotes from Bathsheba in Scripture. One of them is simply, I am pregnant. And the other one is a, a conversation that she has with the prophet Nathan and King David about the succession to the throne. And other than that, you don't see a whole lot, and you're asking yourself, what do you do with that? Well, as we're moving into Advent, we've seen kind of a theme in the lives of ladies. Uh, they were living under conditions that, that, that didn't really offer them a chance to have this. Yet they were challenged with conditions that um, God saw as an opportunity to showcase just how trustworthy he is and how much he is able to help anyone, male or female, through things that um, uh, are, are, are really beyond all odds in overcoming. In the case of Tamar, you know, the question was, am I ever going to have children? And um, Judah, who was the patriarch of her home and his sons, God said, you will. Um, I'm, I'm going to change my mic. Keep going in and out. All right. Can you guys hear me now? Okay. So as we're going through this, we're seeing some things happening in the lives of these ladies whether it's Tamar or whether it is Rahab or whether it is um, Ruth, uh, the odds are insurmountable, but God is faithful. And there's something about that word faithfulness and covenant faithfulness, that word chesed, which you learned last week or the week before. And as we pondered it, we discovered that that was a covenant loyalty that defined their lives in ways that they, they didn't even imagine with consequences in a good way that they never foresaw. And God's faithfulness to these four women, I think, in light of their circumstances and in spite of their circumstances, is something to pay attention to. And as we just zoom in on the life of Bathsheba, you get a sense that her life is pretty passively acted upon rather than her taking initiative and having a voice like the others. But what you discover is that there is a lot more going on with her life than, um, than, than, than we, we hear just in, in, in the offering of phrases that she said. So I'm going to kick off this message with a question. And hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll land there together. And, and it's simply this. Well, I'm going to set it up this way. Everyone has a history, and the most important thing about your past is how you carry it. We mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, 
because the genealogy carries the past of these women into the present, and Jesus actually recognizes the vulnerabilities that they had, and he speaks to lives around him that have similar patterns. So he's not denying or feeling shame about his past. And these ladies also are looking at their own lives, and they're doing the math, and they know that there are two ways that the outcome can occur. One is it's not how you start out, but it's how you finish up. And if you're not intentional about how you finish up, you will just wind up somewhere by the forces at work in your life and how those forces determine your life. And these ladies, as we've seen them, they haven't allowed chance or circumstance to define them, but rather in the circumstances, they took their story and they worked it towards God's purposes. And I think that's an applicable statement for all of us. But here's the second thing that we discover, because these women, as we've showcased them, they are very relationship heavy in how they're described. And so every relationship is based on agreements. Some formal, some informal, all have expectations that make them work. And in scripture, we have an agreement called a covenant. And it is a, it is a connection that God makes between us, himself, and other people. And by design, it shapes our lives and it shapes how we make choices because we want to honor the relationship, otherwise the relationship starts to fall apart. Now I want to look at someone who um, we've celebrated in Scripture for a second. And uh, this person, maybe you've heard of her, maybe you haven't. Have you heard of the Proverbs 31 woman? Okay. So if you've never read Proverbs 31, it's a beautiful picture of a very godly woman who is highly respected. And it is a picture that the son um, looks at his mother and says, if I think of a godly woman, she is the first person that pops into my head. And so I, I, have, I have a question for you. As oddly as it sounds, who is, who is King Lemuel? Because that's how it starts out in Proverbs 31. And who was his mom? We'll just let that kind of hang in the air. Um, and, and just linger a little bit. And let's just, let's just look at the good, the bad, and the ugly of the storyline of Bathsheba. Now, what, what Rachel read a minute ago was, um, what, was a story about a familiar situation that many of you have heard about in Scripture, about the temptation of David and Bathsheba. And in the course of that, um, you find that uh, something happened between them the outcome was a child, and there was a whole lot of drama that surrounded uh, their, their choice to, to be together. And this is where I want to kind of work from the place where someone starts and find out whether they finished well or whether they just wound up somewhere by forces out of their control. And I think that in the background of their story has always been in the Bible a covenant made with Abraham and a covenant made with David. And covenants, well, they're agreements. However, they stop working because we lack the moral courage to keep them. And this is an important attribute for a believer. 
Matter of fact, it's so important that, did you know in the book of Revelation, it talks about the people that aren't going to make it into the heavenly city? And the very first word that they use to say uh, are the ones who disqualified themselves are the cowards. And I'm like, the cowards? Why, why the cowards? And we may think of that as, hey, you know what, I'm afraid to, I'm afraid to jump in the water because it's, you know, I, I can't swim or, or something that is very basic to life. But in this case in Scripture, it is having the moral courage to stand on the convictions that the covenant defines as your way of life. And I think as a believer, uh, we sort of get that, Pastor, but I don't know exactly what you're talking about. And so to prevent mist in the pulpit from creating fog in the pew, uh, we'll do that. Um, and that is, let's just kick it off by reading from 2 Samuel 11. It says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Well, if you're familiar with this story, you know kind of where it's going. But if you're not, uh, King David was the one who set up the kingdom. He was a man after God's own heart. He wrote a whole bunch of psalms. And um, he has a lot of qualities that God saw were necessary to be the warrior king that he became. But the problem was when David wasn't off fighting battles, he was generating chaos in his personal life. And this is, this is one place where a lot of it begins. And that is, there is a time in the spring when people go off to war, and typically he would, but this time... He was staying back, and he's up on the roof of the palace kind of looking out, and I wonder if he's thinking about the people that were sent off to war that he wasn't able to join in the, in the I wouldn't call it the fun, but there's something about fighting and, and camaraderie that's very appealing. But then we read these words, and David sent and inquired about the woman, and the, and the one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, all of that in two sentences, but let's just give you a little bit of uh, a glimpse of what it looks like from David's view for a minute. Okay, so who is Eliam? Uh, Anybody know? Anybody name their kids after Eliam? Well, Iliam was actually one of those people that was part of David's inner circle of warriors. And Iliam was now a person of high stature in the military, highly recognized, you know, think West Point, think um, uh, a person that's responsible for uh, the management of troops and everything that's associated with the successful execution of a military campaign. This guy had prestige, and this is his daughter. And she happened to meet what would be, in effect, a Navy SEAL, a guy who was disciplined. He was way above average, and he had a mission, and that was to serve the, the king in the interest of the kingdom. And he did that faithfully, loyally, and with a way that generated a huge amount of respect. And that guy's name was Uriah. So Bathsheba definitely married somebody and into a family that was prestigious. 
And you have to think that had this evening not occurred or this day not occurred, her storyline would have played out very differently. But as it turns out, um, what just happened has so much going on behind it that I could spend a, a few messages trying to explore that. But, but what I want to recognize from this event is that Bathsheba is, um, is in, a, in a predicament where her husband is going off to war and she's at home and she's waiting and she's young. And as we read the scripture, we find that it's not overly graphic and people have tried to interpret, well, what does this mean? And if, if you, I've found that there are churches that are highly male-centric who would say the problem wasn't David, the problem was her, showcasing her wares in the eyes of, uh, in, in the eye shot of David. And then there are other people come come along and say, no, it was it was David all the way. But as I read the story, I can't help that it's, it's a little bit of yes and no. When I was in South Africa, they had a phrase. It was called yani, which meant yes and no. And I wonder where she was at in her mind regarding all of these things, a husband who was dedicated to the military and probably gone a lot, and just her own desire for being with him. And I wonder if David, when he went up on the roof of the palace, and he saw her. I wonder what was going through his mind. Well, being a male, I, I know what was going through his mind. He saw something, and it was very provocative. But the question was, I wonder what the next conversation happened to be. And I wonder if there was another person there beside him who said, yeah, you better not. And it wasn't so much because you're a man after God's own heart, but what I take that to mean, and that is a man who is after God's own heart, which means that it's not just me and God, but it's me and God and other people. And what is her best interest? And I can imagine a dialogue happening in that conversation in a way that would go something like this. David, you are a warrior king. And there is something that uh, is going on that is its own brand of war and fighting. But the fact of the matter is, Satan has been whispering for a long time. And right now, he's whispering to you. However, if you're a man after God's own heart, it's just not you and Jesus or you and the Lord. It is you and the Lord and other people. So Bathsheba does not deserve to be a victim of your sinful and selfish desires. She doesn't deserve to pay the price for you just having some free time. And she doesn't deserve what this will cause. And that is a lot of pain and a lot of heartache in the lives of people in her world. And if you think about her husband, who has been a dedicated warrior, 30 men that were chosen by David, handpicked to be his special elite force, and he's one of them. And in all of these cases, you have in their eyes a level of respectability, and you don't want to violate that. But David, you know, up to now, I think he's got four, five wives, and his moral compass in this area is a place where I think his weakness shines. And the fact is, when they were settling in the promised land, the decree was one wife only. 
And if people are looking to the king to say, this is how you should carry on, he wasn't exemplifying that very well. And you start to wonder if he's collecting wives like the, the millionaire down the road is collecting plastic cards. And you wonder if this is just another opportunity for him to say, hey, it's okay. I've been down this road before. And it's even darker because David, as he's looking at her, he's forgetting that God has set him up and blessed him in ways that are undeserved and unimaginable. And he's not taking inventory of all of these things, but rather allowing the forces of the moment to outweigh the forces of the things that are also important. And this is where moral courage kicks in. It is a way of evaluating the situation and saying, what's at stake here? Now, a lot of people get caught up on, I don't want to offend God. Well, there's definitely that component, but that is not the only component here. It is the social and relational responsibility that he has to a people that look up to him. Respectability that you earn rather than um, you force on people. And where he's at in the moment with that. And you wonder sometimes if this moment of compromising his integrity was really the straw that broke the camel's back in his outcomes. Because I'm just going to tell you, as good as David is with words, as spiritually gifted as he is, and as I would say gifted in the expression of being able to write those words in a way that have been recorded and, and recognized and pondered to this very day, he didn't have the moral courage that he needed. And this played out in his life, and it begins with just fighting temptation. And when he looks at her, it's mostly about him. And you think about what it's going to create for her. And I'll just tell you what I, I, I perceive to be the outcome. Fear, insecurity, unimaginable disruption that will affect her life for the rest of her life. And then thinking about how that will ripple out into the lives of other people. Now, our culture would say, just go for it. Just go for it. It's no big deal. But a lot of us have lived in the wake of things like this, and quite honestly, we just don't really like the pain that other choices, other people's choices in this way have, have, have created in our own life. And that covenant faithfulness that God has for us is a way of saying, but I want someone and something that is faithful, that I can trust, that I can cling to. And David had all of that. And he had everything that he wanted as far as wives and concubines. But he had to have that one more thing, that one more thing. And it is that greed that uh, is born out of desire that says, I'm not content, but if I have that, I will be content. Well, I, I know how this works. I remember when I didn't have a Dodge Challenger. And I'm like, I want that Dodge Challenger, but I know I'll never have it. I know that circumstances will not allow me to have it. And I just long for it. I did. You guys know that. You guys painfully know that. I mean, I inflicted that on you. And yet that day come when I saw it, and it was like 
checking all the boxes except for one. I had to ask my wife. And she's like, I'm like, well, this is where dreams will die because she's concerned about the larger picture, you know, other people, the kids, college, all that stuff. And she said, if you want it, go get it. I literally said, are you feeling okay? And now I'm like, dreams realized, desires fulfilled. I will be content from this day forward until I see the Hellcat. And I recognize there is a brand of Challenger that is a lot more powerful than the one I have and much better equipped. And I'm like, dang, does it end? And God is looking at us in that predicament, and he's saying, you have to find contentment in certain places. And you have to learn to say no to one thing if you're going to say yes to another. And David thought he could just capture it all and say yes to everything and it not have any effect. But the reality is the thing in the moment does not outweigh in significance the thing that happens after. And if David just pondered her life and her well-being for a second, I think the outcome would have been different. And that's where David is pretty disappointing because he goes on to not only give in to this temptation, but then he goes on to, well, act on it. And meanwhile, here's the wife of another person's, um, it's a wife who belongs to another man, and she's at home, and she's thinking something's weird with my body. She takes the pregnancy test. I don't know how they did it back then. Something about rabbits. Don't know. But she says, oh, my goodness, I'm pregnant. But let's stop and think about her world for a minute, okay? She's pregnant, and her husband's off to war, and the king's responsible, and she's wondering, where is this going? What's going to happen when my husband finds out? And she doesn't know what David's plotting. But David, meanwhile, back at the ranch, is thinking upon receiving this three-phrase message from Bathsheba. He's thinking, what do I do? How do I cover this up so nobody knows? He does the unthinkable. He calls Uriah back, and he says, hey, go spend some time with your wife. You've been busy fighting war. But Uriah, being trained like he is as a Navy SEAL, says, I, I can't do that. Our guys are out there. All I can think about is what they're doing and how they're executing their campaign. I'm not going to be back here pleasure-seeking and living it up when I know those guys are out there potentially dying. And he's, he's like, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. And so David takes... Um, that moment, and he expands on it, but first, the response of Uriah, I think, tells everything, because in this case, Bathsheba is facing the truth, and she could have kept it to herself, and she could have thought about, what happens if I tell the king, who's not going to like this, and that's a lot of questions, but she said, you know what, let's just deal with it. 
because it's going to show up that I am expecting. And David's so nervous over there that he's deciding that as I bring him back, we can just, you know, she'll have a kid, and the first kid, the only person that will know that it's his. This is one of those stories that um, I know is out there. But it's not how you start out. It's how you finish up. It matters. And so in 2 Samuel 11, uh, it says, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and servants of my Lord are campaigning in the full open field. Shall I go then to my house and eat and drink and lie with my, my wife? And David had a tremendous overwhelming sense of anxiety because now one of the men who respects him is going to end up with a pregnant wife and it's going to be out and this is the thing that bothers me about David and I love to read the Psalms and I love the fact that he is gifted in the way that he is but he starts thinking about administrative assassination how can I place Uriah in a place where people get killed? And essentially, that's what he did, and the outcome was predictable. And so you have adultery and murder. And then you're thinking, well, how come we celebrate David the way we do? And I think it's a fair question. And it's a fair question to ask about any person in the Bible, because the fact is, they're just people like you and I. They are called by God. They are gifted by God. They are responsible to God to fulfill their role, and they make mistakes. And all of us in this room have made mistakes. The important thing is, and this is what I've discovered as I get older, about 75% of my decisions I think are pretty much on the mark, and about 25% of them I, I make mistakes. But what I've learned over the years is my mistakes aren't epic like they were when I was younger. I make little mistakes like, well, uh, should I put this mic on or that mic on? And, you know, just dumb stuff. Some of them have a little bit more significance, but life has a way of defining how quickly it unfolds and how quickly things take effect in a way that you have to live with it. And I'm not sure where David was at, but he didn't seem to get the memo here. And she, however, she's yes and no. Saul has killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousands. I mean, this is a guy of prestige. And she could have said, hey, you know what? I, I'm married. We don't really get that. And so she is pulled into this one way or the other. And as this begins to take on a life of its own, it's spiraling out of control, and there is now a murder. And she's not really know, aware of what David is up to. All she knows is that she is, well, she, she prepared to meet her husband, and he didn't show for the date. And then she's wondering anxiously, where's this going? He's not going to like the fact that I'm pregnant. And you can imagine every day waking up with this sense of uncertainty and insecurity and how that just expands into who knows what. Now, that's the way I imagine it. Now, there are other people who take a different take because there's just not a lot psychologically to consider other than what is the normal human pattern. And as it unfolds, in the background of it all, we know that God's watching. And it's not that God is waiting for us 
to do something wrong so he can slam us down. Is God watching us so that he can guide us in a direction that is for the best interest of ourselves and the people around us? And it would seem that God was watching this, and David thought he got away with it. And he called Bathsheba to his place, and he married her, and she had no idea what she was getting into. Because you can imagine her walking into the palace and thinking, okay, now I have to compete with other wives. Now I'm pregnant and unattractive. Where's this going? Is he just going to put me on the shelf? I have no idea. And then you can imagine the discussions between herself and the other wives. I'm sure those went well. I'm not a, 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 a polygamous uh, Mormon from back in the day. But I can imagine that it wasn't an easy place to be. I can imagine there was a pecking order. And there were rules. And she's hormonal. And then there's David. And he's just thinking, I got away with it. But then there's a guy named Nathan, a prophet, who comes in and says, well, God sees stuff that um, most of us don't, and uh, I want to tell you a story. We tell a story about the guy taking the little lamb from another guy, even though he had 10 million of them, and it's not right. And David said, that's not right. And the prophet says, yeah, you're right. It's not right because you're the guy. And David just, I'm sure he nearly passed out. As a result of that, now you got the reality of everything that is happening. Bathsheba said, I'm going to deal with the truth and say I'm pregnant. I'm going to have the courage to bring, put that out there. And David said, I don't have the courage to own it, so I'll gloss over it. And because of her courage, she started to grow. And because of his lack of courage, as we read the story, he starts to diminish. And there's something about the connection between courage and having a voice and being covenantally faithful. And there's something about the disconnection between covenantal unfaithfulness and cowardice that David is clearly doing because this is now a political, we've got a perception, reality, manage this. We got to do what's right for the people. He's got all kinds of rationales that are ways of preserving in the name of the kingdom the face and the respectability of the leader. And she's not having it. I don't think she ever had it. And that's why I think, believe it or not, she has more of a voice than we know. Because as the story continues to unfold, um, we find that God is covenantally faithful to both of them. But he's also letting them live out the consequences of their choices. And I had a conversation with, with a lady uh, uh, this week, and I was talking to her and her 19-year-old son. And we were talking about raising kids because we both have kids the same age. And, um, and he's standing there, and I said, yeah, you know, I talk to my kids a lot about consequences. And she looks at her son, she says, yeah, that's what we've been talking about, consequences. He just bought a dirt bike, and, you know, you can imagine where that's going. He's got a job. Life is good. He's unbreakable. And she's trying to underscore something that the older set, like myself, figure out through the school of hard knocks. 
That is, most of the stuff we learn, we learn through our mistakes. And God allows us to wallow in the drama of our own consequences so that we can learn. It's not so that he can punish, but it's so that we can see that there is, a, there is an ordered way of doing things that's by design that brings joy, it brings blessing, it brings a sense of freedom. But more than anything, it gives you the confidence and courage to have a voice. And this turns out to be important a little bit later on. Because Bathsheba, in the state that she's in right now, let's just summarize what this looks like. Bathsheba's likely emotional state, this is my guess, as a male, trying to figure out her world, so please just accept that as my own limitations and weighing in. But in a sense, this is what's on her mind. I've been taken by David, which is good and bad, but mostly bad. I now plan, I have an unplanned pregnancy, which is challenging because my husband is dead. And that is the next thing. She has a husband who was actually murdered, as it turns out. But it gets even darker because she does have that child and she starts to bond with that child and she discovers a connection and a fierceness of love that she's never had before. And as soon as he starts to begin his journey, he, he begins languishing. And this has deeply upset her, deeply upset David. And now she loses a child. And I, my mother lost a, I, I would, there would have been another brother, but my mom lost a child um, before I was born. And she never talks about the pain that that created for her. But you can only imagine a child coming to full term and then not making it. I don't know what that does to a person. But I think the kid that comes next gets spoiled. Then that's a whole other set of problems. But the fact is, um, it is a scar that runs deep. And public shame and humiliation. Has anybody figured out who King Lemuel is, by the way? There, there, there is no recorded history of any king named Lemuel, other than it's a pseudonym, perhaps, of one who is devoted to God, which the book of Proverbs is really just Proverbs devoted to a life in God in a way of wisdom show, uh, framing that in that covenantal life. And it ends with a peculiar proverb about King Lemuel, the one devoted to God, how he looked up to his mother. The funny thing is, when scholars go to put the pieces together, it always winds up that the woman that we're talking about is Bathsheba, the Proverbs 31 woman. Who would have thought? Because I know when you say the word Bathsheba, you're thinking, that's probably not who I'm going to name my kid after. Matter of fact, Bathsheba is, is like one of the most uncommon names there is. Like they, they, a few years back, they did like a survey of names, and they found out that um, it was way, way up there, like only like three people that they could track had that name. Because there's a word that starts with an S and next letter is an L. 
that becomes sort of your label. And everybody kind of knew. So this is really the ingredients. These are really the ingredients that go to make up the woman in Proverbs 31. Let that sink in for a moment. Because you know it is not how you start out, but it's how you finish that matters. And I suspect that some of the deepest pain that you've carried is really God's way of saying, I am letting you go through that because I am in the business of working all things together for good, except your thing. I can't do that, but I can do everybody else's thing. All things. For those who are called by God and work according to his purpose. And I have to think that Bathsheba, in the awkward way that she onboarded onto God's purpose and calling, well, this is really a little bit of a training ground that God didn't create, but God says, I'm not going to waste it. And I really can't speak for the, the emotional state of what women experience relative to their role in relationship to men. But I can say that um, to not pay attention to it does her a disservice. Now, what we do know about her is she went on to become somebody that recognized her identity wasn't wrapped up in those labels. Because you can imagine how this could shut you down, how in the palace the women would chatter about her, especially because David... Well, she ended up having four children, and David is kind of partial to her. And it would seem that there was something there that the other women didn't have. So you can imagine what her world looked like. And what I think she discovered, maybe through just the lives of these women that we've talked about, I just, I just cataloged a few things. One is, as she looked her, at herself in the mirror, she could say, yeah, I am caught up in all that stuff, but I worship a God who's larger than all that stuff. And when God sees her, you know what he says, because he's included her in the genealogy. He says, you are God's property, his beautiful love. And his holy word is his love letter to you. God will give you the strength you need to face even your most painful battles. And he's faithfully fighting against your fear, your anxiety, and your hopelessness in that covenantal relationship. And your job is to trust that and to ask him to help you to trust it. But I got a couple of more. And that is, in God's covenantal faithfulness, he's fighting alongside you for your marriage, for your family, and for everything you deal with as a woman. He is there. He never will leave you. He never will forsake you. And finally, he wants you to recognize that he is enough. Because when you do, you will know that you are enough, too. And I think that might be one of the most important things. So I, I'm kind of look, looking forward to 
uh, Rachel and Amy going into uh, the new year with uh, some time dedicated to women and helping them to discover how these promises will really undo a lot of the lies that the culture has said. And as we looked at the story, I think in some ways it sets us up for that because these are not women who lack fear because they had a lot of it, but these are women who developed convictions. And those convictions gave them a voice in their circumstances. Now, there's one other place. Holy cow, have I gone this long? I'm sorry. Maybe we'll just stop it right there. Or do you want me to carry on for five minutes? There's one other place that we see her at work, and that is later on there is a, there is a move afoot by Joab, who is the armor bearer of David, and an Adonijah, who is the son of David, saying he's a king now, and he's got everybody's endorsement. But one of the most famous coups in the history of God's people happens by this woman who begins the process of saying, I've invested in this boy my whole life. I have developed him in ways that you can't imagine. So that when he grows up, he's going to be able to run circles around his father's ability to administer a nation. He's going to have such knowledge and breadth of knowledge that he's going to know everything about everything. And he's going to be a king. And so she goes to Nathan the prophet, who called out David and said, hey, you weren't included in all that stuff. What do you think about this? Solomon is the one who is the rightful heir. Nathan says, you're right. Go speak to your husband. So she does. And David's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's Solomon, because David is not finishing well at all. And he says, Solomon is the guy. And that's all she needs to hear. And then on cue, David steps into the room, and he tells a very similar story. And he says, yeah, Solomon is the guy. Go and anoint him the king. And they go and they do it. And a flash mob shows up, and he's anointed. And then, well, the rest is kind of history. And it would seem that if it wasn't for the moral courage of the mom to stand by her convictions, to stand up to the king, and to stand up to an already inaugurated, um, uh, 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 what's the word for kingship? King thing. She said, I'm not having it. And she acted on that with conviction and voice to such a degree that it redirected the course of history. And I think that's something worth telling. Because I'm going to close with this. If you've ever read Proverbs 31, she tells her son, um, don't waste all your energy on alcohol and on chasing women. But the son listened to the father more in that regard, and it led to his own undoing. But then she said something in verse, um, verses 8 and 9, that I think we have to consider as we're moving from here to here. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Let that sink in for a minute. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Where do we hear that echoed? 
Well, there is a song that we're going to be looking at next week by this lady right here. And a big part of that song centers on the substance of those words. And you can't help but think alongside the seed, the promised seed that these women were responsible for bearing that would lead ultimately to Christ was also the content that comes alongside that, that is centered on covenantal faithfulness. It is a safe place, but it's a place that not everyone is included in. And in Jesus' day, as well as hers, the poor and the needy and the people that are destitute, the people that weren't enabled, the people that weren't blessed with good parents, the people that struggle, the people that have broken homes, all the people that she saw because she knew personally. And she knew that the outcome of her life was not going to be determined by forces outside of her, but the growing force inside of her of God's covenantal faithfulness and the moral courage that it took for her to personalize and embody that. She didn't start out very well, but that's not the point. The point is how you end up the wind up. And that's for everybody. Because I'd like to think all of us want to finish well, to wind up somewhere well. And it's a process of continually turning away from stuff and turning towards, saying, saying yes and no, definitively, not yani, but yes, which negates something else. And there are only two people ruling this planet. There's Jesus. And then there are those who do not believe or know or trust that it's Jesus who are ruled by another force that love to feed into all of these areas to keep you captive. And the message is perennial. Once you begin to break away from that stuff, you're moving into a relational agreement with new stuff. It's good stuff. That we're all in a work in process trying to delayer the habits and the routines and the ways of thinking from our past and layer on the good things. And the good news is, no one is exempt. God is inviting everyone. I mean, he even stayed faithful to David. David's a murderer. He's an adulterer. You're like, well, I came to church today and the lightning bolts are getting ready to fuck me. I, I think you're probably okay. And even if that's your story, God has a way of working in it and through it for good. I just want to invite you into that life-giving experience as we close. I'm going to pray. And if God is working in your heart through what we've heard, I just pray you would give whatever it is that he's putting on your heart to him and move in whatever direction he's saying you need to move into towards him with it. Derek, would you come and lead us to the Lord's table? Don't you think that uh, don't you think that uh, Christmas should almost be an emotion in itself, separate from all the other ones that we 
we look at um, the anticipation that we have, the things we want to do. We always want to help other people during the Christmas season. But uh, this past week, I've been thinking, going off this year as an elder, looking back how things have changed and other things haven't changed. And communion kept coming to mind. I mean, all this Christmas stuff going on and communion just kept coming to mind. I don't think it was written in the Bible in the old days when I was a kid that you had to have 10 deacons up here to serve communion. You had to have two junior deacons. Each of the elders gave a long, elaborate sermon that I didn't understand. Um, You had to carry the trays a certain way. 12 trays, you had to carry the bread underneath, the, the cup. And yet, I really think, reflecting back on that, what the Bible really says is to partake of the loaf and the cup in a worthy manner, which is basically what we, we try to do. I mean, you couldn't even sit with your family. You had to sit up on the front pew. You're taken away from that feeling. And yet, today, all we have to do is partake in a worthy manner. Uh, it, it's always hard to, to tie the Christmas feeling when we think of a baby being born for our sins, to tie that into the cross. But that's the reason Christ came, for our sins, to be born as a baby and to end up on that cross. So uh, if you would pray with me at this time, you can, uh, well, before we pray, you can uh, actually go ahead and open your presents. So, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we receive this gift today, the emblems of your body and blood that went to the cross on our behalf. We give thanks for that. I pray that everybody in their own way, in a worthy manner, would reflect on our sins and our, our wrongdoings and that we would come to this table and commune with brothers and sisters here today in a way that you would be happy with. Lord, as we into this coming week I just pray that you would give us the, the excitement and enthusiasm as adults to reach out to others and convey your word the same enthusiasm that we have that we had as kids when we would await the presence that was under the tree so again thank you for this present today in the form of the loaf and the cup we give you the glory and the honor in Jesus name nice being with you today. If you'd like, stand up. We'll close. Um, if you got kids, you got to get going. We're at 1020, so feel free, but we're going to sing out.
And before we do, just a reminder about the worship night tonight, uh, 6 o'clock. I will be in here, praising God, having a nice time. So if you can make it, if you can't make it, try and change things around so you can make it. It'll be a nice night. Oh, and Caroline, that's right, we got Caroline this afternoon, 145, meeting in Fellowship Hall, right? And if you're going and you don't know what Fellowship Hall is, it's the big meeting room we got down in the back by the kitchen. We haven't played this song for a while, so most of you might know it. for my good you 
Amen. Well, nice to be with you. Have a nice afternoon. Stay safe in the parking lot. Uh, I think Josh did put some salt down and clean him a little bit, but be careful walking. And hopefully we'll see you later today.